Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. This episode, we speak with Richard Zweigenhoff about his research alongside G. William Domhoff on diversity in the power elite and their new book, The New CEOs, Women, African-American, Latino, and Asian-American Leaders of Fortune 500 Companies. While Fortune 500 CEOs are still predominantly white males, a growing number of women and people of color have become CEOs in the past two decades. What's caused this increased diversity and what impact has it had? And what does this tell us about gender, race, ethnicity, and class in America? Listen in to find out. Dr. Zweigenhoff, welcome to Office Hours. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you. May I call you Richie? Absolutely. Okay, great. Thank you very much. And thank you again for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to speak with us today. I'm glad to. So let's get right into it. Uh, What can we expect to find in reading the new text? Well, the book is based on a rather dramatic change that's taken place in the last 20 years or so, One, one that was unexpected, at least it surprised us. 20 years ago, almost every CEO of every Fortune 500 company was a white male. Starting about then, and certainly around the turn of the century, various companies began to appoint what we call the new CEOs, that is to say, white women, African Americans, Latinos, and Asian American CEOs, such that um, even during the Bush years, those those very conservative eight years when, when Bush was president, the number of new CEOs was increasing dramatically. When By the time we signed a contract to write the book, there were more than 60 new CEOs. And by the time the book came out, it was over 70. There was an article in today's New York Times about the appointment of a new woman CEO of Avon replacing a previous woman CEO, and that moves the number up to about 80. So there's been this dramatic increase. Um, I want to say real clearly, most CEOs are still white men. That is, if if at any given moment, 30 or 35 um, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are new CEOs, that means 465 are white men. But what it meant for us was that there was a group of 70, 75, now 80 uh, men and women who were not white men, and we could study patterns to look to see who they were, where they came from, why they were appointed, which companies appointed them, what kind of campaign contributions they made in 2008, a whole host of issues. Moreover, because there are enough in each of the four groups, There are now more than 25 white women who have been CEOs. There are 14 African-Americans, soon to be 15. There have been uh, 19 Latinos and 20 Asians. We could um, look separately at each group, compare them among themselves, compare them with white Gentile men, compare them with Jewish CEOs. So so there was a lot that we could do um, statistically. At the same time, we drew as heavily as we could on the stories behind these people and the telling anecdotes. So we we hope that we have a book that is both um, 
data-filled, but also provocative and, and rich with uh, telling stories. So that's part of what you can expect to find. Great, thank you. So sounds like some major shifts in the business world that you're highlighting in this amazing text. And I was curious to know how you and Professor Domhoff actually became interested in the topic itself. And you, you touched on that a bit already, but sure. could you expand a little bit on what provoked your interest? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Bill Domhoff and I have um, written a series of books together, and, and our previous book was titled Diversity and the Power Elite. The first edition of that book came out in 1998, and as I said, um, at that time, there had not been very many uh, women CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, just a handful, Catherine Graham of the Washington Post, one or two others. There had been a handful of Latino CEOs, a handful of Asian American CEOs. There had been zero African American CEOs. By the time the second edition of that book came out in 2006, the numbers had increased such that we included some sections in the relevant chapters about what was taking place, this, this uh, change in the appointment of CEOs. With this book, we're really extending that examination, but we're extending it and, and focusing on CEOs for a couple of reasons. One is because there are more of them, but also CEOs have become more significant players in the corporate elite. They're paid immense amount of money, money far more than they used to be paid. The roles that they play in terms of the corporate elite and the links the corporate elite has with the political elite meant that, in our view, it was worth looking with care at these new CEOs. In our previous book, in in the uh, in diversity and the power elite. In 1998, we spent a fair amount of time looking at corporate directors in the same way. We wanted to know when African Americans and women and Latinos and Asian Americans became corporate directors of Fortune 500 companies. But now we want to focus on CEOs. And, and I would stress that this is a qualitative change, not just a quantitative change. That is, not only there there are more of them, so it's a quantitative change, but it's a qualitative change because with the boards of directors of corporations, you've got anywhere from 13 to 20 members of the board. Most boards now are sure to have a woman, maybe two women, a black, maybe two, a Latino. But when a company decides to appoint someone as their CEO, they're putting they're putting a real investment in that choice. And I'm convinced that this is not tokenism at play. They're not they're not doing it to look good. They're doing it because they want their profits to increase and they think this person can do the best for the company. This is the best available person. And so as we look further into the choices of CEOs, whether we were looking at women or Latinos or Asians or African Americans, other uh, answers to the questions we had began to emerge. For example, and this is this is yet another reason I think our current book extends the previous book, the issue of globalization certainly comes up. Many of the Latino 
CEOs, many of the Asian American CEOs were born outside the United States. They're bilingual. They had experience in Latin America or Europe or running the company's international um, operations. So the increase in globalization and, and the global market for many of these companies meant that they were picking CEOs in a different way than they used to. And, and being a white male was obviously still an advantage, but not the only option. Um, so I think I hope that answers your, your question about how Bill Domhoff and I came to this topic from our previous work. Yes, it does. Thank you very much. And it, it definitely, you can see a lot of parallels between the power elite and that sort of behind-the-scenes work in terms of the strategic selection of, of all of these CEOs and, as you mentioned, it being more than just tokenism. And I think uh, that's where a, a strong connection can be drawn uh, with the power elite that you mentioned. Right, right. And we were fortunate enough and you were gracious enough to allow us to have a uh, sort of preview and a copy of the paper you submitted and presented at the Pacific Sociological Association in March of this year. And I was curious to learn about your uh, thoughts and introduction of uh, the American dream in the paper and sort of the CEO's background in terms of um, being representative of the the American dream or, or the, the myth associated with that and the image right. of, of them being associated uh, representations of the American dream. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about um, the American dream and how that fits into your, your, your research in this project. Sure, I'd, I'd be glad to. In, in our previous book, we had found that many of the... Um, corporate directors were from privileged backgrounds, that many people in the power elite, uh, which we were looking at broadly, that is the corporate, political, and military elite, as C. Wright Mills defined the power elite, were from, were from privileged backgrounds. And we were quite interested in seeing the extent to which these new CEOs came from privilege or came from um, working-class or lower-class backgrounds. We're also well aware that corporate leaders typically claim about themselves or their publicists claim about them that they made it on their own. They pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. They are, they are rags-to-riches stories. And we doubted this, but we wanted to look at it systematically. Before I tell you what our systematic findings were, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, I'll give you two examples. Carly Fiorina, one of the women CEOs, formerly a CEO at Hewlett Packard, um, writes in her memoir, which is titled Tough Choices, that she's from a middle class background. But she then goes on a few pages later to say that her father was a law professor at various colleges, the University of Texas and Duke and I'm not, I'm a few other places, that he had sabbaticals around the world, that she was educated in London and took uh, ballet and violin lessons at the age of four. She clearly was not from a middle-class background, but she presents herself that way in her memoir, even though she also provides evidence that it's not an accurate portrayal. When she was campaigning for John McCain 
in 2008, McCain typically introduced her as having started out as a part-time secretary. Well, maybe she did, but her class background is one of privilege, and you, you don't see that from what she says or what McCain said about her. Similarly, Andrea Young, the um, CEO of Avon, who's about to step down and be replaced by another woman, a white woman in this case, Andrea Young talks about how her parents were immigrants and came to Canada from China with nothing. Well, again, that's misleading because they may have come with very little economic capital, but her father was an architect. Her mother was a chemical engineer. They were well-educated. They had a lot of cultural capital. And so she arrived with many advantages. So when we, there, so the, the, we knew that there... We had to look carefully because we couldn't simply trust what the CEOs said about themselves. When we did the systematic analysis of the American dream question, what we found was that the white women uh, were similar to white male CEOs and, and white male executives. And, and this has been true for white male ex executives since uh, early in the 20th century. That is to say, about 70% of them are from the upper class or upper middle class. When we looked at Latinos and Asian Americans, we found similar data. Most were from privileged backgrounds. I'll, I'll say as I'm in passing that it was a little more challenging to get their class background because they were from different, many of them were born in other cultures. And so we had to um, try to estimate their class background wherever they had grown up. The only exception was the African-American CEOs, most of whom were in fact from either working class families or middle class families. A few of them did come from privilege, but they in fact are much more likely to represent the American dream. They are much more likely to reflect the kind of um, upward mobility that's often associated with the American dream. As we look more carefully at their stories, what we saw was related to some of our earlier research on boarding schools. Um, Bill and I had done a book on the A Better Chance program called Black. The first edition was called Blacks in the White Establishment. The second edition was called Blacks in the White Elite. And we concluded that this scholarship program, the A Better Chance program, which sent students to elite boarding schools, really helped to close the gap between them and white kids of privilege. And what we find with the CEOs, the African-American CEOs who started out in working class or lower class backgrounds, is that many of them found scholarship programs, went to college on scholarships, were given the kind of boosts that allowed them to get the elite education uh, that provided them not only with academic skills, but with the kind of um, social capital and interpersonal skills that served them well in, in, in positions of power. Barack Obama. Barack Obama is another good example, having gone to a, a, an elite school in Hawaii. So, does that uh, answer yeah. the question about the American dream? Yes, that's great. Thank you so much. Okay. And so I, I had a, a follow-up question is, um, how would you insist that CEOs who have sought refuge in their socioeconomic lineage, like many of those that you've uh, illustrated in the new text, right. 
sort of throughout their lives have sought refuge in this in their socioeconomic lineage, how would you suggest they become, or how do we insist that they become truth tellers and and not perpetuate the myth of the American dream? Right. I I think it's an important question. Um, I don't expect them to be very forthcoming because it's likely to serve work against either their self-image or even in the case of politicians, their, their, um, political interests. Um, for instance, in the case of, uh, the men who have run for president since the year 2000, all of whom have gone to elite private schools, they don't want to talk about that. I mean, Bush didn't want to talk about Andover. Gore didn't want to talk about St. Albans. Kerry didn't want to talk about St. Paul's. Um, it's understandable that they're probably not going to be very forthcoming. I think the burden is on the media. And, and the mainstream media has very much... Um, contributed to the misinformation that people carry around about the American dream and about the rise from the, the fact, the claim that these folks pulled themselves up from their by their own bootstraps. I think not only the mainstream media, but uh, those of us who are academics, those who are writing in um, more critical publications. Um, have the obligation to explore this in much more detail and and um, not to leave it as something that doesn't get addressed. So, you know, I think it's a piece of the story that needs to be told. Um, and, and we're trying we're trying to contribute to that. But uh, I have a real critique of the mainstream media on this, including the New York Times. At one point, after... Um, a CEO, one of the new CEOs in our, on our list, uh, a Latino named Roberto Goisueta. He had been the CEO at Coca-Cola for many years. He was one of the early new CEOs. When, when he died, the Washington Post and the New York Times wrote these um, long obituaries, as indeed they should have. He was a key player. But they either said overtly or implied that, that he had come to America with nothing, just like Andrea Young's parents. But in fact, he was from an extremely wealthy family. Both his mother and his father were Cuban refugees, and both of them were from very wealthy families in Cuba. And he went to a prep school in Connecticut. He went to Yale. Uh, so... Um, he was not a bootstraps guy. He was a very successful man who, who climbed through the hierarchy at Coca-Cola, and it was quite an impressive uh, um, feat on his part. But the New York Times and other mainstream media were quite misleading in the way they told his story. So, so I think the answer is with the media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I think that's. I agree that that's a great place to start, and. The text is going to, it just does a great job in dispelling so many myths surrounding the American dream and these particular CEOs assent to these high, high positions of privilege. I'm just curious to know or learn from you whether there were anything that anything in particular that surprised you during the course of your research because I think for many listen, listening now uh, the, the, the backgrounds of many of these CEOs will be quite, quite surprising uh, and contrary to what the media has depicted and portrayed. So I'm curious to know, was there anything in particular that surprised you in the course of your research? Well, 
There were. There, there were a bunch of things, but I tell you, the one that comes to mind first as you ask this question um, has to do with the current CEO um, of MasterCard. And let, let me preface my answer by saying that in, in our previous book, in, the, in Diversity and the Power Elite, Bill and I make the argument that the people who make it through the gatekeeping function and get to the top of these companies, even though um, they're, they're African-American or they're women or, or they're Latino, or, or when we first started doing this work, we were looking at Jews uh, who first made it to positions of uh, corporate power. We make the argument that they need to fit in. They can't rock the boat too much. They can't look too different, and and we even said, you know, if 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 a Jewish man is named the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, he probably shouldn't wear a yarmulke every day. And if an African American is is appointed the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, he probably shouldn't wear a dashiki. He needs to show the others on the board, the others he's working with, or they need to show the others that they're working with that they're part of a club, that they're not that different. They may be different, but not that different. So with that as the preface, here's what surprised me the most. One day I opened the New York Times and see that the new CEO of MasterCard is a man named A.J. Banga, who's wearing a turban. And I, I thought to myself, wow, that's amazing. MasterCard has just uh, appointed someone that goes against the claim that we made. He really does look different. And anybody who sees A.J. Banga is going to know he's not from around here. But what then happened within the next week or two, um, maybe a month later, India announces that they are, going, they are considering a plan to provide identity cards for each and every citizen. So we're talking about, you know, billions of people, lots of identity cards. The day after that announcement is made, A.J. Banga, who's Indian, flies to India and begins to talk to people in the Indian government, some of whom he knows because he'd been raised in a privileged background where he has connections over there. He begins to talk to them about MasterCard getting that contract. I don't know if they got the contract or not. He didn't know whether they would get it or not. But what he made clear is that MasterCard knows that their, their business in the next decade is India and Brazil and around the world. It's not primarily going to be in the United States. So the fact that he wears a turban um, shouldn't have surprised me if I was paying more attention to what was happening globally. But that's just one example of how when we looked at particular stories uh, we were sometimes surprised, and we learned by the things that surprised us. Mm. I can give you one more example if you want. That would be great. You want another surprise example? Yeah, I'd love Here's to hear. a surprise example. Um, I was looking into the appointment of Carly Fiorina as the CEO of Hewlett-Packard. And it was interesting to me, in part, because it came down to a choice between her and another top candidate, the other top candidate was also female and was an internal candidate at Hewlett Packard. And I, I remember thinking, wow, 
what's going on at Hewlett Packard that, that here they're making this important decision. They've never had a female CEO. They're clearly about to pick one, and, and they did. Well, as I looked into it, it turned out that the previous CEO, who had a lot to say about who was going to be chosen, had become a single father when his, two, I think, two daughters, a couple of children, were in their teens. I think his wife died. He was raising these kids uh, on his own. And he became very sensitive to the issues that face women in the corporate world, especially women who are single mothers, but probably all women who do the bulk of uh, household responsibilities. And so he began to put into effect uh, friendlier policies that had to do with bereavement, that had to do with um, maternity leave. He was progressive. He was he was a Jewish male, and I don't think that's um, a trivial uh, aspect of who he was because Jews tend to be more liberal and progressive in their politics. And um, so the appointment of Carly Fiorina maybe reflected the views of the board. I'm sure it did, but probably reflected, interestingly, the experiences of the previous white male CEO. So I was surprised to learn this story, but that story was also elucidating in terms of what leads to change. Um, you want a third? You want a third surprise? Sure, sure. Okay. Here's a third surprise. And this really deals with one of the, I'd say one of the bigger questions we set out to address. You've got these, you know, 70, 75, 80 new CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. One of the questions we asked was, are these companies better than other companies when it comes to treating their employees? Do they treat their women employees better than other companies? Do they treat gay men and lesbian employees better than other companies? Well, it turns out that there are all these organizations that rate Fortune 500 companies on just those things. So we found a bunch of those ratings. We compared the companies that had hired new CEOs with the companies that had not, that is, companies that had only previously had uh, white male CEOs, and we actually looked separately at companies that had had Jewish CEOs. And the answer, to my surprise, was no, they didn't, by and large, <laughs> well, the answer was yes and no. The companies that had hired women did not treat women employees any better than other companies. The new CEOs as a larger group did do better on these ratings than the companies that had only hired white CEOs. But when we broke it down, it turned out that it was two groups that were driving the difference. The companies that had hired African-American CEOs and the companies that had hired Jewish CEOs. And that, I think, is revealing because African-Americans and, Jew and Jews tend to be politically liberal. Their voting pattern is clearly continues to be democratic. The other groups um, had mixed voting patterns nationally, and, and when we looked at campaign contributions, they had mixed patterns on campaign contributions. So I was surprised that 
the companies that had hired women CEOs didn't do better in terms of treating their women. But I also learned from examining those data that um, what the corporate culture, even before the CEOs were hired, was really the predictor of treatment of employees. Now, what we'll want to do over time is to keep looking at those questions and to study these companies, let's say, for the f five or ten years after the appointment of these CEOs. As, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, many of these CEOs have been hired fairly recently, more in the last five or six years than in the previous five or six years. So I, I think this is still a question to be examined. Great. Thank you so much. Sure. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And on that same note, I was curious to know, how, how would you juxtapose the reality that women CEOs are better educated than their white male counterparts, yet, as you conclude in the paper, men continue to earn larger salaries at the executive level and are more likely to be one step closer to that CEO, CEO office? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there are two things at play here. We, we did look at the pipeline, and, and in particular, we looked to see, for these, for these four groups, um, white women, African Americans, Latinos, and Asian Americans, we looked, first of all, to see who was earning um, bachelor's degrees, who was earning um, MBA degrees, who was earning law degrees, and we broke those down by gender. And so it turns out that for three of the groups, for the whites, the Latinos, and the Asian Americans, it's pretty close now between men and women in terms of um, getting bachelor's degrees, getting MBAs, getting law degrees. The exception is African Americans. The women, African American women, are much more likely to earn MBAs, BA degrees, MBAs, and law degrees than African American men. As we go further along in the pipeline, we looked at the um, people who earn $250,000 a year, and their men were much more likely to uh, be represented than women in each of the four groups. So. Um, Whereas it had been even for three of the groups, now at the $250,000 level, white men are much more likely, Latino men are much more likely than Latinas, Asian American men are much more likely than Asian American women, and now the African American men are more likely to earn 250000 even though the African American women are better educated. We went one step further to try to get at the pipeline to the CEO office by looking at those who hold positions one step from the CEO office. And we did this by looking at photographs of the management team or the leadership team or the executive team or whatever they called them at each of the Fortune 500 companies that posted photos of that group on the web. And it turns out to be about half of the companies, maybe a little bit more. Um, and there, the... Um, advantages that males have become even more pronounced, especially for African Americans, especially for Latinos. So you've got one thing happening in terms of education. You have something else happening in terms of the winnowing out process to get to the CEO office. Now, to go back to your first question, why do the white women need 
seem to need to be better educated than white men to become CEOs is, I believe, that the ones who make it through this series of gatekeeping steps, the ones who run this gauntlet, choose to stay in that world and keep getting promoted are truly exceptional. Moreover, I think they probably need those kind of credentials to convince some of the men on the boards that they should choose them, whereas uh, white men might not need those same credentials to get the nod. So all of those things, I think, are, are going on in, in that process. Mm. A lot of gender inequality at work, I can sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm also curious, specifically with regards to um, the CEOs of color that you studied, uh, for people of color whose pathways to success, the same comparable levels of success as maybe the CEOs, uh, for those whose pathways are obstructed, uh, do the accolades of these particular CEOs that have promoted and upheld the uh, idea of the American dream through their own as a as a means to their own success. Do you feel, in some way, that that there's a risk of maybe perpetuating culture of poverty arguments amongst those who are left behind, um, and and specifically in who are who are actually in experiencing hardship and do come from these humble upbringings that don't necessarily foster pathways to success as as these particular CEOs have have promoted. Right. I think I think there are two things at play and and they probably work against each other, maybe they cancel each other on, out, I don't know. The first is that I genuinely do believe that the men and women of color who have made it to these high positions wherever they started out um serve as valuable role models to young people of color, whether they're, you know, young executives in the corporation or kids in high school or in boarding schools. And I think having those role models really uh, is a plus. I, th I think it gives people um, motivation to work hard, and therefore I think that increases their own chances of advancing. On the other hand, the other side is, as you point out, there can be real disappointment along the way when uh, they realize there are still barriers, there is still prejudice, people are um, still not promoted when they should be if it were simply based on merit. And and I do think that, that uh, those two things are operating at any time in this process. For the most part, I think it's great that we have role models. I think having an African-American president is very a very positive thing for everyone in America, but certainly for African-American kids. At the same time, you know, I think that the ongoing discrimination may lead to real disappointment. I'm thinking in particular of, of some of the men and women I interviewed um, for the book that Bill and I did on black boarding school graduates, uh, blacks in the white establishment, and then blacks in the white elite. By the second edition, uh, the people I interviewed were in their mid to late 50s. They were late in their career, and, and so they were able to look back at how things had gone. And there were certainly a number of men, especially, 
who expressed great disappointment with the way they were treated in the corporate world. They had started out doing real well. They felt they were going to be promoted. They ran into, if not glass ceilings, some some barriers that um, they felt were unfair, and a, and a number of them bailed out. Either you know found other places to work or went to went into um, business on their own. They weren't devastated. They still did well. They were certainly they certainly did benefit from having attended the schools they attended, the prep schools and the Ivy League schools. But there was that kind of disappointment that you're talking about. So I think both things uh, are part of the equation. Right. I, I appreciate that answer. That's that's great. So it, it's not, I w- as, you, as you just eloquently stated, it's not mutually exclusive, but right. sort of more both and, which is, which is good to hear because young people of color specifically coming from disadvantaged backgrounds really do need some sort of exemplar or reference to um, success to get a sense of how to get there. And it's good to hear that these people are serving that... Uh, fulfilling that role and I do hope that uh, that's all to the better for the, for their upbringing and growth yeah I, I'm with you completely there and I'm curious on, on the same topic um, can you maybe speak to any of any of the themes of um, color blindness that uh, you encountered during the course of your research and w- was that an important theme in, in your research and in the book I would say it came up in some of the earlier work I did more than on more than in this research. That is, you do sometimes encounter people saying, "I don't see race," or "I don't," you know, "I'm I'm colorblind. I'm just looking at merit." But given how rare it has been to appoint an African American CEO. Um, and actually Latino and Asian American CEOs, I think both the people who have been appointed and those who are appointing them are well aware of it. And, and I, don't, I don't know that they claim to be colorblind. I do think they are saying, we picked him or we picked her because this is the best person for our company. But I think the the claims of color blindness blindness in the larger culture, um, I I don't I didn't see them playing out in quite the same ways here. But of course, um, I was I was getting a glimpse from afar, and and only in some cases was I able to really see inside the companies as well as I'd like to. Thank you again for your for your time, Dr. Zweigenhoff, and I can sense that you acknowledge and deeply respect the autonomy of your readers, um, but I'm also curious to know what you hope that people will take away from this new text. Well, I'm hoping that they will realize that diversity is important, is something that we should strive for. But diversity in itself does not address the many the many problems we have and especially the problems of um, power, problems related to power, problems related to inequality in our culture. So even if we keep increasing the number of 
new CEOs, we get more women, we get more African-American CEOs, we get more Latino CEOs, we get more Asian-American CEOs, unless they um, contribute to really changing the way corporations operate or unless they and others begin to uh, seek a more just world, diversity in and of itself won't do it. So that's what I hope people will take away, that uh, we're glad to see more diversity, but more diversity is not enough. Great, great ending to the um, conversation, a great point, and I appreciate everything um, that you've uh, offered to us today, and it's been a, a real privilege, Dr. Zweigenhoff. And again, the new text is The New CEOs, Women, African-American, Latino, and Asian-American Leaders of Fortune 500 Companies, co-authored with G. William Domhoff. Uh, has there been a release date set? Or, sorry, I wasn't clear on if it's already in, in print. Yeah. The book is now out. It, okay. it, it's been out for some months now, it, it's a hardback. We're we're expecting a paperback to come out in the near future, though we don't know exactly when. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's out there, and we've gotten real nice um, responses so far. But we're, we're of course looking forward to more. It's been a pleasure to dialogue with you, Dr. Zweigenhoff, and thank you for joining us today on Office Hours. Well, thank you, Russell. I really enjoyed talking with you. That's all for this episode of Office Hours. Thanks for listening. 